Before we start the interview, I was looking through the data and found that more than 60% of you who listen to the podcast don't follow the show. So can I ask you a favor? If you have ever enjoyed one of these interviews, please hit the follow button if you're on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share this with a friend. It helps more than you can imagine build my dream of making this show onto the top charts and changing entrepreneurs' lives. Thank you very much and enjoy this episode. All aboard the MBIT Podcast with Seamus Madan. Kat, thank you for taking the time to join the show. It's a pleasure to have you on today. Thanks for having me. I want to begin with your pinned tweet at the top of your Twitter that starts with, don't forget where you came from. What do I need to understand about you to know where you came from? I mean, some of the most important elements of the where I came from, which is obviously not about the city <laughs> or the location, but uh, the situation is I grew up um, in a, probably a very common situation, which is a family going through transition. My mom was getting ready to leave my dad when I was nine years old. I'm the oldest of three girls. I have two younger sisters. Uh, so when I was nine, she came to me and said, that's it. I'm done. We're leaving. And what she meant was we were leaving my dad. He was an alcoholic, um, sweet guy, but terrible husband and father. And what was interesting about the situation is both sides of my family everyone, they were incredibly poor, except my dad. He was an executive at an auto imports company. So he had a you know fancy job. And at that time, up to that point in my life, we had a house, we had a car, we had abundant gifts at every holiday. And so from the outside in, it looked like we had it best. And for many years, uh, my mom's sisters, her own mom, my dad's family, even when my mom would talk about the bad things going on, they would say to her, but you're so lucky. Like we have to deal with bad stuff too, but, but we don't have a house. We have to deal with bad stuff too, but we don't have a car. And you can imagine how those conversations went because everybody was dealing with alcoholism and then further poverty and joblessness or drug abuse. And so my mom had all these messages, like, you're lucky, you're lucky, you're lucky. You shouldn't be questioning what you have. You should be grateful for what you have. And she was certainly grateful it wasn't worse, but she also came to realize it could and should be better in some of the more important ways outside of financial abundance, safety, trust, love and relationships, those foundational pieces. And so she finally decided to leave, even though she herself had an uh, entry-level job and she had no one to rely on. Again, no one had a lot of money. They didn't have a lot of extra room and none of them really thought she should be leaving in the first place. And so when she came to me and said we were leaving, I did not cry. I did not get upset. As I have shared many times over the years, I looked at her and thought and said some version of what took you so long. As a nine-year-old, the roots of what would grow out of that um, which are very powerful is that the people who are closest to the action know what the right thing to do is long before a leader makes the call. So I knew it was bad, but she was stressed out about taking her kids away from our dad. But the reality is I didn't feel like he was much of a dad. So it wasn't that big of a loss, right? So this gap between what the leader perceives, the people will think and how they'll react to a hard decision and 
how the people who are in the situation will actually react to the decision. Of course, this varies based on age and maturity and their own perspective. Uh, but that's a big part of the where I came from. And, uh, and we did leave and we went out on our own and she worked multiple jobs to make ends meet. And she fed us on a food budget of $10 a week for three years. So the other parts of where I came from is really the example of my mom, courageous, gritty, resourceful, entrepreneurial, could do a lot with a dime. Uh, and so, you know, that colored my my thinking, my beliefs about how people and women can and should show up in the world. And then it made me want to work at a very young age. I needed to work because I needed money for things that require money. Doing work, waitressing, working in the mall, cleaning gym equipment was honorable. It was a way out of that situation. It was freedom. Um, it was many things. And so I started working very, very young. And in that early work journey, I was often either elected to leadership positions or asked to take on leadership positions. And it felt quite natural because I'd been in a leadership role with my family, with my sisters for many years, whether it was in sports or school or these hourly jobs. And so leadership became a big part of where I come from. So your dad at this time is an alcoholic, like you mentioned, um, and you're in the middle of trying to escape this situation. Later, when you look back on that situation, you you view it as a positive experience more than a negative. Why is that? Because in general, life's been pretty awesome since then. It kind of sucked before that moment. I mean, it's pretty like, you know, I, I just think about what the alternatives, what life might have played out to be. My dad ended up getting worse, actually, so much so that he got arrested when he was in his 60s um, for check fraud for stealing his parents' life savings, which I don't know, it was like a couple thousand bucks for prescription meds. Like it got so sad and so bad. But then a judge ordered him to a recovery center and he got sober and he's been sober ever since. And I don't know if that would have ever happened if he had stayed enabled by a marriage and family and situation. So I, I don't know, I see mostly positives. Speaking of that independence, you mentioned you started working very young. You actually set a sales record at 16 for your job as a part-time salesperson at a woman's clothing company called The Body Shop. How did you do it? I cared. Like, I, you know, I cared about people being happy when they walked in the door. I viewed my role as a salesperson, as someone who was like a conductor. I was taking people on a tour, on a journey. I was helping them find what was best for them. Certainly, I knew how to intersect that with what the business wanted us to do. There were promotions and sales incentives, you know, buy three, get one free scrunchy socks and 20% off if you get a vest with the shorts. And so there were incentives and things the company wanted to do, but I never used that at the expense of the customer. And I think that was always felt. It was like, if it was a better deal for the customer, then I absolutely pushed those offers and opportunities. But if it wasn't, I didn't. I I was a role model. I wore the clothes. I loved the clothes. And so when someone would come in to buy something for their daughter, you know, I'm rocking it. And they're like, I want what you have on. And I thought, oh, that's so great. I'd love to help you. And when someone would come in looking for themselves, I would take the time to help them. So it felt very authentic. And again, I loved it. I loved 
clothes. And I'm not even that big of a fashion person, but I was, you know, 16. So it was cool. And I got a discount on clothes. So it, it was selfish that as I thrived there, I got more of a discount for me and my family. And yeah, I, I think I just really appreciated helping people make the best choice for them. And when you can do that, it certainly can optimize trust in a relationship and it can optimize sales building on that relationship. I think part of us are, are always selling, whether it's for a date or a job interview, or we're selling a product or a service for a company of our own. How do you think one could be a master at intertwining those two things, connecting and helping the customer, but also being great at selling? There's a few ways. One is go back to that rank order. One is first, right? And it's understanding people, helping them understand what you offer, you know, whether it's a product or who you are as a person, if you're talking about dating or relationships, it's got to start there. Then finding the opportunities to connect the dots. And that still has a lot to do with listening more than talking, with connecting more than, oh, well, then you should try this, or you should see this, or this might be great for you, or this thing about me is a fit for what you just said you like, you know, again, if you think about the relationships. So it really is focusing. I'm not always doing both. I'm focusing more on connecting and listening and understanding the situation and over time learning myself, you know, knowing how I can come across and what my tendencies are and being clear, like, what do I really want? And if it's a customer, what I really want is a long-term relationship. What I really want is them coming back either for that thing or more things over time. And so blowing it out by pushing everything that I have on them in the early days that may not be a fit, may turn them off, is actually fighting against a long-term or high LTV, right? High, like long-term, profitable, sustainable, high-value relationship. The same is certainly true for personal relationships. When you take a look at your life, maybe from a wider angle, what do you really want? To help people realize they're capable of more than they know. That's my thing. Like I've been doing it since I was a teenager, whether it's through coaching or mentoring or leading or hiring people or firing people. Once I became a leader, working with franchisees, mentoring entrepreneurs, um, being a great partner and sounding board and at times coach for the people I love in my life, you know, friends, that's my, that's my thing. And so whatever I'm doing, if I'm doing more of that, so whatever the job is or the event is, or the relationship is, if that is the result, then I am getting what I want because I, what I want is making the highest and best use of my time uh, on this rock <laughs> that is flying around the sun. And and then more broadly, it's just doing the right thing for the right reasons and feeling generally fulfilled and happy and helping others that I interact with who are in my presence um, feel exactly the same. So 
taking a step forward after your sales job, a little bit later, you decided to go to college, which most people would think is a pretty big step, especially for someone with your background who grew up in poverty. But then you drop out and get a job at Hooters, which most people would consider going backwards. What were you thinking during that time that made it seem like that was the right move? Well, I had the job at Hooters before I even started college. So I started Hooters in high school when I was a senior. And actually, I was a junior because I was 17 and became a hostess. So I was there before. Um, and I did start college. I was the first person in my family to get into college. And I was an electrical engineering and computer sciences major. My plan was to get that degree and then go on to law school. And Hooters was a way for me to pay for school. And so I was a hostess. I was a waitress. Um, I became a bartender. When the cooks quit and needed help, I went back and learned how to cook. I was a trainer, which is someone who helps teach new employees their job. And this is all in my first two years there. And so I, I still, even though I was going to college, was making the most, I mean, I was working every job in the restaurant. Um, and so the dropping out thing happened because Hooters had asked me to be a part of international training teams and travel around the world and open franchises. And so at 19, I was in Australia, I was in Central America, I was in different states in the US. And so I was traveling so much, again, moving up, being elevated professionally, taking on a ton of responsibility that was so bananas for a 19-year-old. I was doing that to such a degree that I was never in school. And so I was failing. <laughs> and so through my actions, I had already made my choice, right? This is where I'm spending my time. These are the opportunities right in front of me that feel bigger and more unique and more important than going to class. So I'm going to keep doing that. And then, uh-oh, I'm failing and I meet with the counselor and she says, there is a way to make up your classes, but you're not only going to have to stop traveling, you won't even be able to work as much. Like I was going to have to go full-time plus and I still needed to work. I was still waitressing in between these openings. I was getting paid for the international openings, uh, but I still had to work waitress shifts in between and none of it was a salary and none of it was contractual and there is no insurance and I was out on my own. And so I had to pick up every shift I could. And so simply, I could not afford, I could not financially afford to stop working, which is what would have been required to dedicate the full time needed to make up the classes I'd missed. So I dropped out. And so really, the way I look at it, even though you said, well, hey, it could look like stepping back, um, going backward. Actually, what was happening is I was going like this in the Hooters organization that caused me to fail college. And so instead of going backward to make it up, which again, I couldn't have afforded to. Uh, I just kept going like this. And so I took a corporate job at Hooters, which happened after I dropped out. I just believed there would be more opportunity. And so I moved to Atlanta, started working in the corporate office. As the company grew, I grew every 18 to 24 months. I was promoted into a new management level or role or over a different area of the company. By the time I was 26, I was a one of the vice presidents with the company doing around 800 million in revenue. I mean, I didn't know anyone in my network that was that age, whether they had been to college or not, that was doing anything as what felt as big. And so it felt like I'd made a pretty smart choice 
along the way. However, I did realize there were things I missed. The language of finance, the language of business and accounting, the mentorship of business people that were outside of not only Hooters, but the restaurant industry. And so I, I decided to go back and get a master's. So I have an MBA through the executive MBA program without a bachelor's nights, weekends. So I still valued higher education deeply. And I recognized what I lacked and identified the solution to what I lacked, which ended up being actually going back to school. How did you get your MBA without a bachelor's degree? Magic. <laughs> oh, I had a mentor, um, a woman who took a great interest in me. She was a recruiter and still is a dear friend today. Call me and she's like, look, if you want to stay in the restaurant industry, you're going to have no problem getting any job you want. Everyone knows you. You're active in volunteering across the industry. You have great accomplishments. Even though it's Hooters, people still in the industry understood, you know, it's restaurants and it's a pretty sizable chain. So there was a lot of credibility there. She said, but if you ever want to go anywhere else, you are not going to get past their HR filter. You're a child of a single parent, alcoholic father, college dropout who's worked at Hooters her whole life. Like if you want to go work in tech or retail or anything that's not restaurants, it's just not going to fly. And she said, that's a shame. And I agreed. I didn't like the idea of doors being shut. I wasn't dying to leave Hooters. I was loving it when I got this phone call, but I hated the idea of my optionality being removed. And so she said, look, I know someone who's a CEO who got their master's without a bachelor's and it's not easy and it's rare, but it's possible. You go through the executive MBA programs. They do require you to get GMAT, GRE, or both. The lion's share of people, of course, have an undergraduate degree, but they will occasionally, in uh, exchange for these years of management experience and you needing to get a higher score on your entrance exams because they still need to have graduates, right, who go on to thrive for their scores and their rankings. So they have to de-risk these exceptions, but it is possible. And that's all I needed to hear is that it was possible. I started calling all the business schools that had executive MBA programs with locations in Atlanta where I was living and still live today and was accepted into multiple MBA programs. They told me I had to take the GMAT very quickly. So I took the GMAT and I had to get a higher than typical passing score, which I did. And that was it. I started at Georgia State University, Robinson College of Business in 2008 and graduated in December of 2010, two months after I had started as president of Cinnabon. So I didn't need the degree for a great job. I already had that, which is why most people go to those programs is to level up. It's a requirement or was at the time. I did it for different reasons. I knew the language of operations. I knew my business inside and out. But when I needed to talk to analysts, attorneys, investors, which we were starting to have to do because of things Hooters was going through, there was a gap. And, and so there was the gap in real time conversations and opportunity that I wanted to close. And so while I wasn't looking to leave, I certainly didn't want doors closed that shouldn't be closed. So that's why I ended up going back. Being so successful at such a young age, have you ever had or dealt with uh, imposter syndrome? I think in, in any circle, right? People hear about imposter syndrome. So I have a lot of thoughts because I've been asked about it a lot over the decades. One, I think it would benefit many to call it other things 
syndrome feels like an illness that you can't break. And the reality is what people mean when they say imposter syndrome is self-doubt, like a voice in yep. your head. Who am I to be here? Like, should I really be here? Should I speak up here? Because I don't think I'm as experienced as those folks. So moments of self-doubt are natural, human. There's no one on the planet, I don't think, unless something is operates very differently in their mind, that has never had a moment of self-doubt or questioning, am I ready? Um, do I deserve to be here? And, and in general, it's a sign of humility and a good thing. The question is, what does one do with that voice in their head? And, and so I've had, of course I've had it like, oh man, these people are so much more experienced than me. I was 26 years old. Most of the executives that I was peers with sitting around the boardroom had been in business longer than I had been alive. Literally, right? 30 years in executive roles. They're in their late fifties, early sixties, mid sixties in some cases. And I'm 26. I'm the same age as their youngest child. And so that's super interesting. And so of course, you know, and then you had like a gender dynamic, not always, but often. And so of course you have, you can't help but feel the difference in the room. And the question for anyone who experiences this and what I have considered either a superpower or something that helped me along the way is just like, how much oxygen do you give it? Yeah. The voice is there, but as my chief people officer at AG says, you know, if you have a tough thought or you're feeling away about something, it's fine to visit. Just don't set up residence there, right? Like how much time and energy do you give it? So do I deserve to be here? Well, does that matter? Because I'm here. <laughs> Am I as experienced as them? Definitely not. Do I know things that they don't? Of course. Like, so it's just like, you got to find your way through it and then choose how to interact. And that's where people have challenges. Some people overcompensate for that voice in their head and they like demand to be listened to and they can be really difficult. And um, sometimes that can almost reinforce the differences or they get very, very, very quiet. And it's like, you have a seat, but you're not using your voice because you feel like, well, I should just listen. I'm lucky to be here and I'm not, you know, I need to wait. And of course it's, it's good relationship hygiene to not come in hot right away and listen and learn. But for minutes, not days and weeks. So we've all had those moments of self-doubt. It's just what we do with them and how we recognize, of course, there are gaps between me and someone who has more experience, but I also have things that they don't have. And the reason we're all together here is to make that perfect puzzle or that ideal puzzle of bringing our strengths together. You've had a quite the journey over the past couple of decades in your professional and personal life. What do you think are some of the hardest things that you learn the tough way that you want to teach your children? I mean, certainly everything I went through with my mom ended up, as we discussed at the beginning, being quite positive for me, but it was very hard on her, very hard. And, and so I don't have it as hard. And so what's nice is my kids aren't having to see me make so many sacrifices and put myself so far back in line. And so they're seeing me work out. They're seeing me take time with my husband. They're seeing a healthy parenting 
relationship. And so I want that differently for them. At the same time, I don't want them to be spoiled. <laughs> and so, you know, this like making sure that we still create the environment, my husband and I, and anyone who helps co-parent and care for our children, where they make mistakes, they are loved, but not coddled. They fall down, they figure things out. We let them have tough times. We don't make things too easy. And that's tough because making something hard for them sometimes means less convenient for me <laughs> because I just want to like order the thing. <laughs> and I've worked really hard in my life to be able to afford the convenience, the speed, the flexibility, you know, whatever it is. And sometimes that's not the best example for them to see. So I think about that a lot and making sure they still figure out their own hard ways to be self-reliant, to be gritty, to be resilient. Um, so that's, you know, I think that's really, really important. I, the other thing with me growing up, I didn't have a lot of education around money, personal finance, and for obvious reasons, right? Like we were very poor. We were barely making ends meet. It's not like it was a big strength of my mom. And, and so I made some mistakes when I became a professional at such a young age and didn't know how to make the most of what certainly for a 20 year old was an unusually high income and opportunity. And as I moved into my mid twenties, I didn't know what to do with it. I wasn't smart about it. I didn't have the right tax advising. And so, um, a healthy mindset around money and seeing it as the tool that it is, is something I didn't have that we are absolutely building into my kids. And then making sure we're protecting all the other things that my mom was so good at, like teaching us to be leaders and caring for others and doing what you say and finding honor and work. Um, and again, helping and supporting others. Like I want to make sure I protect all those great things that despite it being hard, my mom still somehow figured out to instill in us. What would you tell the next generation of leaders? What, what do you think the biggest lesson the next generation of leaders should walk away from this interview knowing? I would say, although we haven't talked about it overtly, what is underneath a lot of my answers. So how do I navigate a moment of self-doubt or uh, raising my hand for opportunities like going around the world when I'd never been on a plane or deep within that is some fairly deep level of self-love. And that of course was poured into by my mom. And so my advice is if you are in your late teens, early twenties, you're living in a very different world than I did in eight, when I was 18, 19, there wasn't the social media weight, which means there wasn't the beauty of it and the connectedness of it. And there wasn't the darkness of it. It was just different. And so what I see in the younger people that I mentor or people who have kids or younger brothers and sisters who are navigating this era is it's, it seems it's a little harder even than it normally is to find that self-love because you have so much comparison and potentially negativity and all that. It's like, how am I able to be very different and the youngest person in the room and not freak out and mess it all up? Cause I feel pretty comfortable in my own skin and someone put me here. And so I'm going to work really hard to make the most of that. And 
raising my hand for opportunities that seem like a stretch. Do I think I know everything and was the best person for the job? No, but do I think I'm a great person for the job and knew how to figure it out and saw the strength in what I brought to the table that was different, this idea of being contrarian and independent? It's hard to be contrarian and independent if there's not somewhere over time, if there's not somewhere deep inside that you like who you're becoming. I've never thought I'm perfect. I've never loved everything about how I show up every day, but I love who I am and I love who I'm becoming. And I'm really grateful for the things that built that. And so work on yourself and do your best to find joy in the journey because everything else is so much harder. If you don't, not impossible, but it's a lot harder than it should be. And it's a lot more fun if you view it as a journey that you're on and that most things you actually do have the opportunity to change them in some way. So this like view on the world, does it affect you or do you affect it? I have deeply always believed that I affect it. I am open to how it affects me, but the scales are tipped in favor of, I can actually do things that change things. And if things change, I change. And then, you know, and then that keeps happening. And as a result, I've had a lot of firsts and that means a lot of mistakes fail is first attempt in learning. So just get comfortable with screwing up and don't view it as this like assassination of your reputation or character, because most people are never going to remember. They're just not, they don't care that much. And most people are obsessed with themselves. <laughs> and so focus on you, work on loving yourself, be a nonstop learner, get comfortable with screwing up and realizing it's part of the process and be on a journey. I think those are some great points, especially your point on failure, because I think a lot of times it's stigmatized in some senses, especially in school, where it's not necessarily a good thing to fail. But I think failure can be the best teacher if you use it as such. So totally agree with you on that. But thank you very much, Kat, for taking the time to join the show. Greatly appreciate it. We'll have a link uh, to your LinkedIn down below in the episode description and uh, greatly appreciate the conversation. Awesome. Thanks for having me.